this love of service, I wanted to connect back out to the world in a way that actually was helpful and useful. I wanted to give, I wanted to contribute, and I wanted that for my kids too. Jessica is an entrepreneur, investor, and speaker. Her work over the last decade has focused on financial inclusion, the sharing economy, and social justice. Currently, she is the founder of Altruist, offering at home kid-friendly volunteer projects for families and a co-founder and general partner at Untapped Capital. She is best known as co-founder of Kiva, the world's first crowdfunding sites for micro enterprises. Kiva lets users lend as little as $25 to individual entrepreneurs, providing borrowers affordable capital to start or expand their businesses. Since its founding in October of 2005, Kiva has facilitated over $1.5 billion in loans worldwide. Jessica's work has been widely recognized. Honors include the Economist No Boundary Innovations Award, Fast Company's Most Influential Women in Tech, Silicon Valley's Forum Visionary Award, and uh, a finalist for the Time 100 Most Influential People list and many more. She holds an MBA from Stanford Graduate School, a certificate in global leadership and public policy from Harvard Kennedy School, and a BA in philosophy and political science from Bucknell University. Jessica lives in Los Angeles with her husband, author Reza Aslan, and their four young children. All right, welcome back. We are here today with Jessica Jackley on the Gravity Podcast. Jessica, thank you for taking some time to join me. Thank you for having me today. Great. So let's get to know you. We have Summit in common for those of you that are listening. Jessica and I are both involved with Summit Series. She is a Summit Fellow. I've always enjoyed the conversations with other uh, folks in the Summit crew. So um, that's a little bit of the background, but I will let you do the real background and start at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about your early childhood memories, dynamics, your family, etc. Sounds sounds good to me. It's always a good place to start. So I grew up outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I have a brother who's two years younger than me, and I have truthfully the most loving, wonderful, supportive family. I mean, I could have just if that's all I was ever given in life, I've already, you know, I've already been given more than I would ever have needed or deserved. So I I have a spectacularly wonderful family. Um, it's funny, my I have <clears throat> four little ones and I just hear them like stampeding out the door. And my parents <laughs> are upstairs saying goodbye. They've been visiting for the last week and it's been really fun. So they're they're up there. Um, How little? Uh, I have two 10-year-olds, identical twin boys, and then a six-year-old boy and then a 20-month-old girl. I know like you're get, when you get into the 20s with months, it's like, say too, but she's not yet. And she's my last baby. So I'm going to use months for a little while longer. <laughs> I don't blame you. Yeah. That's yeah. great. It's a full There's house. A oh, it's, yeah. it's so fun. Yeah. So my family, yeah. I mean, I love my family and I wanted to build a family of my own. It was absolutely my dream. And that was because I came from such a wonderful one. I come from such a wonderful one. So anyway, um, small, but close-knit, really tight family. Uh, I still talk to one of them, uh, my brother, my mom, my dad every day, even when they're they're back home. And the, the thing for me was, I always knew my home was this very safe place, like my, my foundation, my, my sort of my home base, right? I, I could go out into the world. It's just sort of attachment theory on large. I mean, I could go out into the world and circle back and I would have connection again. And I would have reassurance that I would have encouragement and we'd work through and process and then I'd go back out. And those adventures got bigger and bigger and grander and grander. You know, something I write about in my book uh, is the influence also of the church community in which I grew up. I, I was a part of a lovely, sweet, kind of sleepy old Presbyterian church in my childhood, childhood, kind of before high school. And it's where my mom was baptized and my parents were married and I was baptized and we've been there for a long time. And um, there, were, there, were, there were Sunday school lessons that left a big impact on me, you know, for good, bad, and, you know, misinterpretation of many things. But I, I so appreciate the values that I got from that upbringing and from that exposure and from that, that spiritual journey as a kid. 
And the, the two scriptures that jumped at me that, you know, I don't want to cut to the chase too quickly, but then it ended up directing a lot of my later work were um, these concepts that on one hand, when you, you know, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. This idea that when you serve, when you help, when you show up for somebody who is living in poverty, who is suffering, who has a need, you're doing this cosmically important thing. Like you're helping God out because God needs some help. Right? So mm-hmm. this idea that you could connect with another human because it was of divine significance. It, had, it was this redemptive thing. That was spoken to me at a very early age. And I was fascinated by that. I was also pretty skeptical and a little frustrated because there were also scriptures like the poor would always be with us that baffled me. Like, here's your homework assignment. Go be useful to people, but you're going to fail. Sorry. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Poverty and suffering never going away. So good luck. Um, and I, I feel like that tension of have, wanting to have hope, wanting to participate, but also knowing very well that it, you know, what does it mean when you sign up to work on somewhat intractable problems? Do they have to be that way? Is that actually really true? Is that what that means? Or is it really just about suffering, human suffering as a condition? So anyway, I know it sounds like a lot as a little kid, but the basic concepts of let's all go be helpful, that's your job. If you're hearing this message, your job is to help, but also heads up, it's it's a big one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a, there's a, big, a lot of problems out there. I mm-hmm. I tried to carry those two things and, and um, tried to figure it out. And I, I'm always still figuring it out. Mm, mm. It's so interesting. I mean, you say that, I mean, and it's, um, yeah, it's an interesting perspective. You're coming at it from a um, religious education, church yeah. community experience. But the language that you use, and this is why I think oftentimes religion does have a lot of value, Um and I'm not, I'm not really a very religious person, but I, I really get the value in it because when you talk about concepts like, yeah. you know, how to serve other people, um, maybe how to embrace that some things are so big we may never fix them, right? Like there's a lot of really practical learning in there and um, real life practical, practical like um, stuff you can use out in the world, like today, despite, you know, how long ago that was written. And, and you talk about it from like a divine perspective, which could, could certainly just be a spiritual perspective, whether it's religious or not, which is kind of where I land. Mm -hmm. But um, what I'm really kind of curious about is these are teachings that you're describing that were coming in at a young age, like as a, a child. And I'm wondering like now you're an adult, oftentimes we look at things, you know, from a hindsight perspective, but what was like the embodied experience as a child to feel that kind of learning and also be in this like loving household? Yeah. So you're correct in saying memory is so weird, right? We we do our best to not just understand what happened in the moment, but then process over time, right? So in the moment, if I try my best to go back, I mean, it was very simple. It was very much like, by the way, as an aside, I'm, I love um, you know reading par- parenting books, techniques, things like that, because it's, it's really nice to have a steady input of fuel and like recalibrate my own thinking as I parent so much every day. But I look back and, you know, one of the shifts that I've been, that a lot of parents today probably read about is how you're not, you're not supposed to do the like, good job, you know, the good job and you're supposed to praise effort, not an outcome, all these things. But I remember my very simple, the very simple um, sort of way of looking at the world for me was like, I wanted to do a good job. I wanted to be a good daughter. I wanted to be a good student. I wanted to be a good, whatever, Sunday school person. <laughs> right. So I, I would hear little things that you could do to do a good job. And I'd want to, I'd want to do those. I'd want to achieve those things. It made me feel good about myself. So there was certainly that element. Um, there was also just again and again being told, basically, in church and elsewhere, like you're you're one of the lucky ones. You're a privileged person. And I grew up in a middle class household. If that right, like it's not like we were wealthy. But I knew that I had all that I needed, and I felt so secure. I felt so secure and safe. 
And I would believe that the world was a place where I should, I should go out and try to get like, because I was so fortunate, my job was to be a giver. It was, it just, that's, that's, that's how it felt all the time. I was always so filled up with love. Therefore it was my job to go share it, you know? And it's funny when I say these sentences, I know it might sound cheesy. I know it might sound um, too good to be true, but it's, it's honestly my authentic experience growing up. It was pretty magical. Yeah. Well, one, it's great to hear. And, and one of the things that um, I've learned from recording almost 100 podcasts now is that usually people have um, one of two paths in, as, as children. One is traumatic, and that has a whole range of, of levels of trauma. Um, the other is unconditionally loving and like yours. Um, yours aren't as common as the other, um, but but I've learned they're more common than I realized, and it's really actually uh, inspiring because I think you know what what most people do that um, I shouldn't say that what I I know many people do that had the the other experience the traumatic experiences they try to change that for their kids and for their families. And and give them what they didn't have, and so there's a lot of you know kind of silver lining to have had the thing that you don't want, so that you know what you don't want, so you can do something different. But at the end of the day, what we're all I think aiming for is a loving household, family, society, and when you've experienced it, and then you then want to replicate it, what a beautiful thing. It is. It is. And you know, we're, we happen to be talking at this perfect moment where like, again, I'm at the end of a week long hang with my family here, my parents here. And the, we went out to dinner last night. I mean, we were tearing up at the table, just talking about how grateful we all are for the connection that we have and the way, you know, I turned 44 last week. My parents are in their seventies and I, and we're still super tight. And we were looking back over the, the seasons of life and just being grateful. So. Yes, once in a while, I think I, I honestly feel like I could very well possibly be the luckiest person in terms of emotional, you know, wellness or just starting off as strong as possible. So it's not obviously every relationship is is strange and has imperfections, and there's always where places to grow, things to work on, all that good stuff. But overall, gosh, I'm thankful. Okay, so tell me with that kind of mindset and that yeah. environment that you are in, what happens? Like, what do you do when you, when you have this kind of sense of service and that it's bigger than you and that you have a, a purpose here and, and it's to share? What does that look like when you're, I don't know, getting into your, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school days? Yeah. Well, when you actually truly believe you can go do anything and you actually truly believe it's possible to, you know, invest in another person's life and, and have a relationship and connection with other human beings that can be beautiful and good and, and meaningful, right? Um, what, what I remember feeling was that I... So let's take the instance of trying to learn about the world of... of I'm doing air quotes for people listening. Of like helping out, right? So... Is that the nonprofit sector? Let's just call it that. It's the nonprofit sector, people there to serve other others who are sort of left out of all these other market um, forces, market loops. We can go on on that too. It's part of my what I teach to my students. Um, here's the deal. I remember feeling like the asks were so underwhelming all the time. Like I had, I was bursting with, um, you know, a desire to participate, and almost always I would hear these. Um, you know, these actions that were kind of pathetic, like mm-hmm. these, these requests to, you know, don't worry, just for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can help someone else, you know, throw your change in the jar, just round up, you won't even notice. So it was often financial, almost always. And then the ask was like, don't worry, you won't even know you're giving. And I was like, what the heck? I'm here to give, like, I'm here to help. I want to be mm-hmm. in it. I don't want to just drop a few coins in a jar and like, let someone else go do the thing. So it's very confusing to me. Mm-hmm. to figure out how, why I was being asked for something so tiny when if the problems were really so big in the world that I, I you know, I'd hear mind numbering statistics about poverty, for example. And, mm-hmm. 
And then I was being asked to throw some spare change. Like, what? That's mm-hmm. dissonant and weird to me. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. then I would try to actually like do stuff, right? To, to, to sign up for volunteer days through my church or my high school, you know, all the extracurricular activities I had access to. And I would go do these one-off things. Sometimes I did regular things too. Like I remember I did coaching and I did, you know, I uh, helped, um, I forget exactly what the program was. It wasn't Special Olympics. But I remember I, I, I would do like swimming with kids that needed a lot of assistance in the water. And then I did, you know, candy striping and I did soup kitchen stuff. Like I did a lot of stuff, but I, I felt always, even with those pieces, and I was a kid, but I was a really confident kid. <laughs> I thought I have so much more I can do. I'm just doing these kind of one-off things. And I also felt confused because many of those things didn't feel like they were addressing the causes of problems. Like I, it just very much felt like at best, for, so the default was give your spare change. Okay. The next level was participate, but you're doing these one-off kind of band-aid things. I just felt super frustrated about it. Um, mm-hmm. So by the time I was in college, I just wanted to figure it out. I wanted to figure it out. So it's interesting. You know, you were trying to figure it out all along. And yeah. and when you say by the time you got to college, you just really wanted to figure it out. I'm imagining that there was like this really like breaking point almost where you're like, I got to figure this out. But tell me a little bit more about like what happens there. Well, you know, you go in, I went into my liberal arts education, you know, pre-traditional four-year university. And I remember feeling this freedom to study whatever I was interested in. I never thought about like, what will be the most useful set of things that I can learn to get, you know, gainful employment afterwards. It's not how I thought. Mm-hmm. And for whatever, for all the reasons that we're, we're talking about, I guess, I thought the best stuff to study would be philosophy because I get to ask these big, tough questions and often questions that I never encountered in my, you know, Sunday school, church participation, like crazy big, what do we even know at all? Questions about our assumptions and what, what we know and what we don't know, right? Mm-hmm. So philosophy helped me ask big questions. I studied poetry because it was beautiful and I love language and I wanted to learn how to communicate like that with the power, like a few words and boom, you just scratch the itch, right? To, to say these beautiful observations in a, in a, in a way like that. I, I just, I was in love with it. So I studied that and then I studied political science. Sorry, I technically majored philosophy and political science and then I minored in poetry. They didn't have a major. But anyway, uh, political science for me was, I thought, a way to take a swing at understanding the systems of power in the world and thought, if, well, I can figure that out. I can, I can figure out, well, who's making these decisions? And what, what can we change here? So that was great. Notice that I never studied business or entrepreneurship because I thought, oh, no, 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 nonprofits, well, they're not businesses. They're doing good stuff in the world. They're actually there to like show up and help and be generous and be givers, right? Businesses, I don't know. I thought Mm. I was was wrong. I mean, spoiler, I've since changed my tune, but I thought businesses were just set up to like make the owner of the business rich and to kind of trick people into buying stuff they didn't need. I just was so not interested. I thought it was not a tool that could be used for good. So never thought about it. Like was very skeptical of it, in fact. So that was Mm. me in college, super fun. Mm. I was great to hang out with, you know, <laughs> I was so angsty. And then, um, yeah, I graduated and did not have a plan. So this is not prescriptive. It's just descriptive. But I, I was in love with the boy in California. And so I moved from Pennsylvania to California and I thought it would be for a few months and it's like 20 years later. But um, I, I basically like begged my way into a temp job at the first place that would, that had anything. It was at Stanford Business School because I, I'd moved to this like crazy house full of a dozen people that had just graduated from Stanford. I mean, it was like a two bedroom and we were all packed in this place. Maybe it was a three bedroom. Regardless, we had like a guy in the driveway and like a guy in the back under this tarp and like a guy in the garage and like three of us in this one room. Anyway, it was really funny and, and, a, and a really fun place to be, but it was on Sand Hill Road. If anyone knows Sand Hill Road, yeah. it's all the VC firms and then like these handful of houses. And then apartments and more of these. Anyway, so we, I like walked across Sand Hill with my paper resume 20 some years ago and handed it out to anyone that would take it on Stanford's campus. And I happened to get a temp job there. And I was worried about being at the business school because I thought, oh, these are not my people. Like they're trying to just get rich, not yeah. anything. I want to help. And then I noticed like pretty soon into my temp job, actually, they were sort of amazing, crazy, like creative thinkers. 
trying to use these these structures, right? Mm-hmm. Business thinking, entrepreneurial thinking to do all sorts of things, right? And mm-hmm. many of the things were I was fascinated by. They're trying to save something, trying to solve some of the same problems that I was. So that's yeah, me it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, um, I'd love to get into that because you know, obviously, that starts to really inform your career. Yeah, but it is a fascinating thing, you know, that you've kind of grown up in this household, love, service, you know, all the kind of religious teachings that that fuel you into being who you are, wanting to study and and learn how people think. And you're really, really, you know, kind of in that world. Um, And then you just like accidentally stumble into the business community through a temp job, through (laughs) randomly, right? Like, like feels, that feels pretty divine, you know, like, okay, we need you to get this like really strong fundamental, um, you know, way of being in you. And then we're going to show you how to um, use business to serve others. You yes, know, like, yes. it, anyway, I don't want to tell no, your story, you're, you're, but like, you're hitting on it's, something. yeah, you're hitting yes. I laughed the other day. I was thinking, I don't know how this came in my mind. Oh, I actually, I was recording another podcast actually, and I was just thinking about it after because I, I quickly just, I quickly went through all this part. This is great that we're slowing down on it. I love it. Love mm-hmm. this conversation. But I realized I basically ran it off. And then I moved to Silicon Valley. And when somebody says, and then I moved to Silicon Valley, they have this picture of like, I mean, I just was so unaware. I, mm-hmm. I was moving for this boy, not because it was Silicon Valley. I would have moved mm-hmm. to Iowa. It didn't matter. I just was, mm-hmm. that was my adventure. But I happened to land in a place where everyone's saying, what if, what if, imagine, you know, we could do this. And then they go make things happen. So I, I was in the land of like making dreams come true, mm-hmm. um, making ideas reality. And I, I soaked it all up. It was awesome. Mm. Yeah. Well, talk about that piece a little bit because, you know, I'm in, I'm here in Columbus, Ohio and our listeners are all over and we actually have a pretty vibrant venture scene mm-hmm. here now, thanks to some Ohio guys that, really spent time, a lot of time in Silicon Valley. But but a lot of people might not know, like, you know, what was it like? Talk more about this idea, this land of, you know, people saying what if and then making things happen. Talk a little bit about what it was like for you to be a part of that at that time. Yeah. Well, remember, this was like not 98 and it was 2000. So I came then, which maybe mm-hmm. wasn't the ideal moment, but it was... It worked for me. I'll keep it. I'll keep it idea based, not like. And then this was happening in in the world. Mm. I landed. I felt like I had moved into like future land, like Tomorrowland at Disney World, right? Or is it Disney mm. World, Disneyland? Anyway, <laughs> I moved. I, I I landed at a place where I suddenly realized all these things I'd never heard of, all these technologies, all these you know ways of thinking. So I I learned a lot instantly. I was exposed to just a new set of reality, and then to watch people and just very like a very of course of course this can happen like why not sort of way think up new things and then actually go make them like build them like rally teams and resources and bring it all together and begin it was just amazing it was mm. amazing mm-hmm. so I felt yeah the, the easiest quickest way to describe it for me is I felt like I suddenly fast forwarded into this futuristic place mm-hmm. <laughs> from, you know, from central Pennsylvania in Amish country to Silicon Valley. Um, it was, it was wild. That's yeah, definitely uh, quite the change. Now what happens? You have a temp job at Stanford. You're soaking in a whole bunch. You're seeing people yeah. do really cool, big things. You're starting to see maybe businesses and all bad um, mm-hmm. What do you do with it? So, exactly realizing this business school isn't just filled with bad guys. In fact, all of them are amazing and not just guys and people that I could relate to. I started to get to know students. I planned a lot of events. Um, my temp job ended up evolving into an events planning kind of kind of role, and then um, like a program coordination role. And it was great. But I always felt like I was right near, but behind this sort of glass window like I was near and close to all these people doing kind of like they would leave and go do dream jobs. They would, you know, these incredible leadership roles at nonprofits or at social ventures or they'd start, you know, um 
they start funds. They would do, they would work in socially responsible businesses that were doing incredible pioneering things. And I felt like I was close, but like a world away because I was a staffer. I wasn't a student. I wasn't learning the actual things they were in classrooms. And so because I didn't know any better, I did start to try to like mooch and learn. (laughs) So I would show up at office hours when professors had no one else to talk to and, and say, can you just tell me a little bit about pricing? I'm not a student, but I'm very curious. <laughs> and I would, <laughs> I would crash lectures. And in fact, three years later, I was there for three years. And looking back, that feels, it felt, I don't know if it felt long or short, but it, I, I remember feeling right before this moment I'm about to describe, I remember feeling like I thought, well, is this it? Do I just, I, I do this. It's not my dream job. I watch everyone else go get to do the dream jobs. I earn a paycheck. I pay my rent. I buy my groceries. And then I, my, you know, my money goes down in my account. I save a teensy bit. And then it starts over in another two weeks. Again and again and again. I thought, is this what it is going to be? I need to shake it up and do something different. But I didn't know what that was. And again, at the, where I stood between where I was and my dream jobs, I had no idea what that path was going to look like. And I felt like it wasn't a traditional path. Nobody would have recommended to me if I had said, you know, how do I go become, you know, the head of an amazing venture doing impactful work in the world? First of all, no one would have said, start off as a temp. No one would have said, go work in or build a nonprofit and then you'll be great at business. Like, it's just nobody had, I didn't know what I, what I was supposed to do. And certainly a, there's a critical mass of people that do some traditional paths post-business school. Again, I wasn't in business school. <laughs> I was just around it. But I saw people going off and logging their time as consultants or iBankers or whatever. I just wasn't even interested in that. So I, I felt confused as to what to do next. But one night I stayed and crashed a lecture like, like I did. I stayed late after work. And this guy, the fall of 03, this guy named Muhammad Yunus, was <laughs> coming through campus and talking about this thing, this bank for the poor, which I thought sounded super weird and sketchy. Um, and again, this was three years before he would win the Nobel Prize for his work, his pioneering work in, in microfinance and, you know, with the Grameen Bank. But regardless, I stayed after. I, I sat in the back of this like 50-person classroom um, in case it was lame and I could leave. And of course, it was this like lightning bolt magical sort of moment where my eyes were open to a, a theory of change and a, a way of looking at, you know, an intervention, right? Uh, a way of looking at other people that was very different for me. So I learned about microfinance and microcredit specifically and thought, what? This is the thing? Mm-hmm. A little bit of mm-hmm. capital in the right time, in the right place, in the right hands with the right training. And like, what? People can lift mm-hmm. themselves out of poverty? This is amazing. Mm-hmm. They don't need me to swoop in and be some sort of strange savior. That's good. Um, so that was great. And I also, it sounds small, but I was amazed and changed. Like as I listened to the way Dr. Yunus talked about the poor, right? People living in poverty. It wasn't a sad story. It wasn't suffering and desperation. And you know, if you call this 1-800 number or throw your change in the jar, like you can come in as the donor and change it all. No, 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 no. You talked about smart, strong, hardworking individuals that didn't have access to a resource that I had had access to my whole life that put me through college, right? Alone. I, it was very straightforward. Like everyone has potential. These individuals have potential too. This is their situation. They need access to some capital. Then they're out on, the, on their own and do the work themselves. It was just kind of mind blowing. Mm-hmm. And I was so inspired and I was so ready <clears throat> to shake it up that I quit my job at Stanford and I um, kind of baked my way into this unpaid internship in East Africa. And I went there for a few months and it was, it was the best. I was mm. living in, um, I, I was living and working throughout, <clears throat> excuse me, Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. And my job was basically to interview entrepreneurs that had received a hundred bucks and to hear how their lives had changed before and mm. after that grant. It wasn't even a loan. It was a grant, but I was like, close enough, let's learn. And I, um, I, I was wondering just like, um, how that, how that so- changed people's lives. Yeah. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, but I just was wondering, like, you just kind of like, yeah, and then I went to East Africa, you know, uh, quit my job. Um, That doesn't seem like it would be so straightforward for for me or most people to just leave, you know, this beautiful part of California and just kind of like move um, all the way uh, for an internship, especially. But when you describe what you were doing, 
that sounds pretty unbelievable and maybe enough to go, yeah, I'm, I want to go do that. I mean, what was it like for you? Was that something that you felt called to, inspired by? It was like a hell yes, I'm going. Or were you anxious to go to Africa? Tell me a little bit about that. I actually wanted to go to a you know a handful of other places first, but I just was trying to. I mean, I didn't even know what to say about my own my pitch for you know why anybody should want to work with me. I was like, hey, I've planned event for the last three years, but I'd really love to learn about microfinance. Let me in. I did not have a strong like. I didn't have any competitive advantage. I just was like excited to learn. And I found this incredible mentor and friend as I cold called all sorts of nonprofits during, you know, it was, you know, a few months between when Dr. Yunus spoke and when I actually got to do something and and leave that job. But um, my intention was there until I figured out where I would go. As I cold called individuals, organizations that I thought would have you know, something they could teach me and and that I might be able to contribute to. I found Brian Lennon, who was the founder of Village Enterprise, a nonprofit that I worked with. And he basically took me under his wing and we figured out a role that would work for me. But I've I've never, I mean, very few times in my life have these guardian angel types that come in and say, I see you, you're enough exactly as you are, where you are in your journey. We're going to figure this out. And so it's not like I have this deep set of incredible skills to offer. I mean, I was a perfectly capable communicator and, you know, um, very enthusiastic, (laughs) great attitude, was ready to go anywhere. But it's not like I could say, I will do the following analysis. I will, I don't know. I just, he figured out that I could go, I could listen, I could learn, and I could tell great stories about the people that I'd meet. And Mm -hmm. and by the way, on the the theme of um, story, yeah, I learned later when I ended up going back to Stanford as a student for my MBA. I really wanted to be on the other side of that wall, you know. I um I learned one of the most valuable pieces was I learned, huh? I guess who knew? I guess I'm pretty risk tolerant. So mm-hmm. truthfully, the quitting of the job didn't feel as dramatic to me in the moment. And I, I don't know exactly why, but I think it might have something to do with my love of a great story. And so I felt mm-hmm. like, well, worst case, it's a great story. This will be fun. It'll be an adventure. Like that in and of itself is a currency. So let's go see what happens. So I, yeah, felt, also, again, I felt safe and secure from day yeah. one. So I thought yeah. it'll all work out. It'll be fine. Yeah, that's, that's what I was just going to say. Like, I think, you know, you can't underestimate the safety and security and that kind of thing you talked about early where you knew you could go out in the world, you could come back and that you could work through whatever you need to work through and you had yeah. the um, support around you to do that. So that helps you kind of build a risk tolerance. Um, You know, I think some people are more naturally wired for risk than others. Um, And, you know, you could probably look at the two paths I described that I've heard on the podcast and just, and, and, you know, could see people going either direction, right? Well, you know, you're so secure that you might not want to take risk or anyway, there's a lot of different ways this could go, but I actually believe that risk is something that you can learn to tolerate by doing it. And when you do it and you realize that you're okay, even if it doesn't go well, then hopefully you're willing to take another risk. Um, And certain um, kinds of risk, right? Certain kinds with certain potential costs. Like I'm not, I'm not a person that's gonna, I'm not like eager to go skydiving for whatever that's worth. I don't know. It's fine. mm -hmm. I'm sure it'd be fine. Just not my jam. But anyway, like I take certain kinds of risks very easily. And I think other kinds, I've never really been that drawn to or felt a need to go try, you know? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Maybe yeah. there. Well, I like to um, kind of hear all of the background because you end up, um, you know, kind of landing on something big. So I'll let you kind of tell your own story, but like, tell me a little bit about kind of how this starts to all come together for you. Yeah. So I'm there on the ground. My job is to go to a different village every few days and interview goat herders and seamstresses and farmers and you know people that sell two things out of a kiosk at lunchtime and people doing very small, specific business activities as survival, like survival entrepreneurship. And Village Enterprise provided this $100 grant, not even a loan, but something to like get them started and see what it's like to invest capital into your tiny venture. Like, Hey, I have 10 chickens and now I can have 40. This is really interesting. What happens now? You know, can I sell some at the market and then have them come and build a fence and buy whatever you would watch these like 
was a very approachable, very easy to understand like intro to business. Not the Silicon Valley intro to business and entrepreneurship. That was its own thing. This was a new way. They were entrepreneurs too. And it was just, it was so fun to see that, right? This is business as well. This is the same principles applied, um, the same concepts applied, applied. So I got really excited about the entrepreneurship that I was seeing unfold in the stories of so many people that up until then, anyone like them, like a person living in sub-Saharan Africa that had very little financial resources, very, very few financial resources, I would be told the story of poverty and need. And here I was seeing stories of entrepreneurship. To me, it felt like a total opposite. And so I got super excited to share those stories. And I also got excited to connect my friends and family, people that I knew, and then beyond, ideally, right? Which, which ended up happening. But not with just those new stories, but a new way to get involved. Because you know, when you hear the, the same old sad side of a story, you know, we all have sadness and we all have joy and we all have triumphs and challenges and... Certain people have, of course, a lot more, but 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 the, I felt like the truth of all the good stuff that was happening had been not put in the spotlight for me. And that was where the hope was. And that was where, you know, when you see someone else in a different role, your role changes. If you, so silly, but um, I talked about parenting books earlier and, and parenting theories and stuff. You know, if you look at your kid and they're tantruming or something, and you think my kid is just being such a problem. You come in in a certain way with a certain role and a certain goal, right? But if you think my kid is having a problem, you come in soft, you come in compassionate, you come in wanting to be a teacher, not a disciplinarian, not a let's get this locked down, right? You come in wanting to connect differently. So when you hear a story about poverty, certain stuff is activated. You want to come in and help and be the savior, whatever. When you see a person who's like an amazing entrepreneur doing so much with so little, I mean, I come in with admiration and awe and at best, like maybe I'd, I'd be privileged to like partner with this person and yeah, be helpful. But I mean, it, it, it's a different set of um, feelings and, and thinking and belief was activated for me. So it made sense to connect differently, not through a donation, which is I'm not bashing donations, fine and appropriate and needed and it's a whole thing. But wouldn't it be fun I thought with my co-founder, Matt, wouldn't it be fun to connect differently through a loan? That would be interesting because that's what a lot of these individuals needed. The grant was a unique thing that Village Enterprise did. And it was it's a wonderful way to get things started. From there, a lot of the individuals I met wanted a loan, sometimes $200, $300, $400, very small. But being not a high net worth donor myself, um, I this is the other funny piece. So there were kind of three big insights. One, what if we like shared this new story and kind of stayed in touch with this amazing goat herder, whoever. Um, what if we stayed in touch and shared the story, right? And followed their progress. What if we connected through a loan, even a 0% loan? Wouldn't that be interesting, right? Um, and what if we did that? Because I didn't have the cash. I didn't have the money to do that, certainly for more than one person, maybe. Um, what if we did that by like rallying our friends and family to help pitch in? Now, I say that because it was so early in the game. We weren't using... The word crowdfunding, that wasn't a word. That wasn't a thing. We were like, there'll be a lot of little bits of money from lots of people. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. it was crowdfunding, but it was very, very, very beginning, early days. So that became all these what if, what ifs became the pilot round of loans for Kiva. It was about $3,100 needed for seven people in Uganda. Um, the money came, like we didn't even have online payment processing at the time. It was just <clears throat> an idea and some pictures on a website. And you know, my grandma handed me a twenty. It was just—it was a funny exchange, but we got it done. We sent three thousand or so bucks over to East Africa, over to, to Uganda. It got dispersed to seven wonderful entrepreneurs. They were paid over the next six months. In the meantime, I started business school, which was a fun place to be when all this was starting to happen. Um, <laughs> it was a great like side project while I was actually learning about business and entrepreneurship to have a thing going. Anyway, so the pilot round was about three thousand dollars. That was in. Um, 04. In the spring, or sorry, the fall of 05, we finally we said, let's do another round of loans. And you know, took we launched the site for real, took the word beta off of the little website that we'd passed to friends and family. And then that first year we did 500,000 in loans. The next year it was 15 million or so in loans, the next 40, the next 100. And I actually did not check recently, but he was well over one and a half billion in loans today. And it's in these $25, $50 bits, you know from well-intentioned, generous people all over the world um, that want to empower and provide a, an opportunity to other 
really wonderful people all around the world that happen to be in the place where they they need access to capital um, in a different mm. and, and don't have the resources that you and I do to get that capital. incredible. So it's, it's, it's really an incredible fun. story. Yeah, oh, it, it's um, fun. I'm I'm sure you know, and and hard and challenging, and and all the things that you know go into starting something new. Um, but incredible. The results are phenomenal. I mean, one and a half billion dollars in loans starting from where you were starting from. And what I'm kind of struck by, I'm just, you know, looking at your bio and, um, you know, it, it includes, you know, Bucknell, Harvard, Stanford. I mean, you have studied technically at, you know, some of the best institutions in the world. And, you know, your story, though, the way that you tell it, and and I'm sure there's a lot of humility there, but it's what and this is why I love kind of having people like you on the on the show is because it also seems very kind of like organic and natural and like you were just following threads of things that were inside of you that you cared about that were showing up as interesting as maybe a way to solve problems that you were passionate about, combine your interest in a way that would produce something that would mean something to people and in the world. And and I think a lot of people, when they look at the Harvards and Stanfords of the world, or when they look at people that have had your success, especially when they come out of Silicon Valley, they look at them as different in a way that they couldn't also have the same kind of success. Oh, I didn't go to those schools or I don't live in Silicon Valley or <laughs> I'm not the later. I went yeah. to school after this stuff. <laughs> right, right. But I do think people can read a bio and pretty quickly create a story that's, that's not me. I could never do that. And yeah. what I love about your story is, you know, you're um, a woman from, you know, from outside of Pittsburgh, <laughs> right? Who mm-hmm. just Born followed a guy. City, Pennsylvania. Right. Yeah. Follows a guy to California and the next thing you know, uses your whole life story to create something that's massively impactful. I mean, what, what I think, you know, it doesn't say here and what you didn't say is then the movement that that, that starts. I mean, Kiva is not the only one that's doing microloans and tackling this problem now. So that one and a half billion is actually, I don't know how many billions because of the movement that got started out of this. It's really, really phenomenal work. And I just want to like underscore this point and the purpose of this podcast is it is something if you listen to yourself, if you follow your passion, if you kind of let your life serve you, you can serve other people and make a huge difference in the world. Yeah, it's very possible. And I think what is really true for me, I mean, you know, I I, I think sometimes uh, there's this assumption that like, let's say you're, you're, you're working for a great cause and, and you want other people to join. And there's this strange, like you have to go convince other people. I am like the happiest. I have this wonderful life. And I was just as happy. And it was just as exciting when we were at the very beginning doing very specific, small, but like meaningful things. So the first seven entrepreneurs, I mean, anybody could help seven people. It was the best. It was so fun. <laughs> and then that changed to a few dozen. That was amazing. It felt wonderful. I mean, selfishly, gosh, it was. I talked about currencies earlier too, or I mentioned that word maybe. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful feeling to know that you're doing something that's really improving someone else's life. And starting small, it's not anything to apologize for. First of all, it's the only way anything ever begins, or I think a lot of, of things that start specific and small then have the opportunity to become excellent and and really, you know, hit the sweet spot of what's going to be, whether you want to call it product market fit or just the thing that works, right? And then they grow and then they, they have the potential to grow really quickly and, and to a really enormous scale because you got it right. But you can't get it right if you're trying to go big too, too fast. And I think, I mean, you can really stop and enjoy those early stages. Not like, um, I'm, I'm not saying, and that's enough, just always only serve five people to 10. I mean, maybe that's the, that's the path for some people. It's great. There's a lot of joy and there's a lot of pleasure in those very early, early days. And so 
<laughs> I guess I'll just say, yeah, it's fun to rattle off those numbers. Um, I just double checked the site. It's, it's like 1.65 billion or something. So it's a lot. And there's, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people impacted. That's great. I'm very thankful to have gotten to be a part of that. It's just as great when it's a few dozen people or whatever, right? It's yeah. just as wonderful then. And yeah, because so, you're not in it for the the number. Um no, it's like, I mean, I, it's, you, you, I want it to happen. Like intellectually, I'm like, no, 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 that's better. We can help more people. But in right. terms of like my capacity to feel, I mean, can you imagine the difference between helping a million people versus two million people? I can't really, but yeah. I know what it feels like to help that one specific person and to watch that unfold and to connect with them. So that's what I love. Yeah. And I mean, maybe it's like, um, you know, you have a wide range of ages with your children. Yeah. Um, you know, so you maybe are able to experience this. You know, I have three kids there. Uh, my youngest is 15. And and I found that, you know, each stage uh, was amazing. And like, I would say each time I still do this, like, oh, I don't want you to change. You know, mm-hmm. this is like the best time, right? It's kind of like that with a business too, where, you know, yeah. it's like, you know, each stage and, and maybe okay. you have your favorite stages, you know, that you can't have with kids, but, um, you know, there is something to be said for just kind of loving each stage. Absolutely. And, and if you have that like passion and that, um, core reason for why you're doing it, it's a lot easier to find that love in each stage. I agree. And not to wish it away, not to rush it. I, um, a friend recently was describing how each stage of entrepreneurship is like, and I'm not a gamer by any means. I mean, I don't play the video games. I don't, who has time for that? Anyway, but I, I think like the idea of each stage having requiring a different set of skills, like phase one, you have to like yeah. jump through these hoops really well. And then phase two, season two, you need to like, I don't know, find all the treasure, whatever it is. Listen to me making fake video game references. Anyway, <laughs> I feel like with entrepreneurship, like you're learning and exercising a new set of skills uh, every as as things shift, same with parenting. It's if you just kind of enjoy that and enjoy that you're never gonna get comfortable. And I, you shouldn't anyway, or that's not a good sign. Enjoying the growth, enjoying the challenge that's always the challenges that are always coming at you fresh. I think that's it's it's sort of a hack for for more joy, that's for sure. Yeah. Okay. So we I don't want to run out of time without giving sure. you a chance to talk about now what? And yeah, I know yeah, there's yeah. been a lot in between, but tell me. Where are you now? What are you up to? I mean, you mentioned teaching. I know you've got your hands in a lot of different things, but like, where did this all land for you? And, you know, you're still in the journey with a long, long way to go. But, um, you know, tell me about what today looks like. I'd be very happy to do that. There's, There's, you know, fast forward through time. There's been, as you said, a bunch of other ventures, a bunch of other projects. Today, there's two main things. One, I have a fund called Untapped Capital, and it's pre-seed, seed stage in entrepreneurs that are often um, under-networked or don't have the access to the same sort of community and resources that I've acquired and gathered over the last few decades. My partner, Yohei, has his own sort of amazing network. They're not very overlapping. So we have this gigantic world of um, great people that we can... Not just in, when we invest in our, our companies, we can nurture them along with our skills and experiences as much as possible, but then introduce them to a whole world of wonderful individuals to kind of supercharge their and catalyze their path. So that's so fun. I've been investing for a while, but to, to do it through our own our own fund is just is just a joy. So that's one piece. But the other piece is called Altruists. And it's a startup that uh, came about during COVID when I was just so frustrated that my experience with my kids was that of a, you know, inside the walls of our home, not going out into the world and just receiving and consuming and just our, our, you know, our universe became so small and focused inward and it just felt not right. And so having this love of service, I wanted to connect back out to the world in a way that actually was helpful and useful. I wanted to give, I wanted to contribute. And I wanted that for my kids too. Couldn't go to the soup kitchen, couldn't do the same whole volunteer project that I grew up with. And even, even when it was, even in non-COVID times, right, it's, uh, it's really difficult to find and schedule volunteer opportunities and certainly to bring kids along. So Altruist is my solution for families that actually want to engage in service and but need to do it in a way that's very much on their own timeline. So we have a new box out every month 
on a different topic. But it's basically this wonderful, I think, volunteer experience for families based on, you know, our first box was on homelessness. The next box was on saving the pollinators, right? Save the bees. The next box was on hunger. Um, the next that we're shipping actually today is the one, one focused on refugees. Next month is a clean water box of charity water. So in each box, there's sort of this, um, you learn, you get the facts, the fun facts, the not so fun facts. I have all the booklets for all our things at my desk. And it's, it's a kid-friendly sort of like thousand word primer on the issue at hand. Like, what is this issue of housing insecurity? Let's talk about it. Um, and answers to questions, like tough questions for parents, because that can be really stressful for me. Like mm-hmm. my friend Leah said this amazing thing a few months back. She was like, oh my God, I wish my kids would just like ask me about sex or something where I actually knew the answers, but they want to talk about do. <laughs> so these big social issues, like it, it can be tricky to engage, even though they're very meaningful and important conversations to have. So you learn, you, where, where's my other booklets? You connect, right? You build empathy. This is a different one, but you build empathy with uh, stories of kids who have experienced the issue at hand in a very different way than probably the kids using this experience have, um, you know, had contact with that issue. Then you actually act and you do a volunteer project. So for the homelessness focus box, it was um, we worked with an amazing partner, New Story, and kids make a card and a keychain, this beautiful, you know, uh, beaded keychain that then they send to Mexico. And when families served by this organization, you know, they build new homes for them, and then they move into their brand new home. Their first house key is on this keychain from our community of kids. So kids get to kind of be a part of that really amazing trajectory shifting moment. And there's a bunch of other projects for each issue as well. There's other activities that help explain the mechanics of things. Um, But anyway, to keep moving through it, then there's give. Every box comes with a $5 donation. And the last piece to to the non-partner that we work with, and the last piece is sort of this do more section where we have all sorts of additional activities and resources for families and kids that want to keep going. You know, we're just this little tiny baby company. And it's such a joy to be at the beginning again, like we talked about. But so far, we're getting wonderful feedback. And, uh, you know, to be able to volunteer, to do service with your kids anytime, anywhere on your own schedule, right? With kids 10 and under. I mean, it's it's testing well with older kids too, but for now, we're designing for 10 and under. There's really nothing else like that right now. There's a lot of other stuff. You know, if you look at the subscription box world, there's a ton, obviously, that you can get to help help your kids learn science, help your kids learn how to cook. Here's some cute clothes every month. They're great. They're fine. Here's your new books every month. But this is a complete experience. You can do it in about an hour where you're really not just building another science project. You're like building this meaning. You're building something that matters and allowing your kids to participate in the world in a way that's helpful. So full circle back to right how I grew up, what mattered to me. I'm trying to make that happen for my kids and for anyone else's kids that wants to jump in. It's a great story. The um, full circle is a perfect place to land. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I'm just struck by hearing this, and we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, is you do have a real amazing ability to simplify concepts for people to be able to engage, I think, in what otherwise might be overwhelming or intimidating or um, unaccessible. You know, and I see some common threads in what you're doing. I mean, this um, new idea of how to connect to kids um, about giving, how to talk to kids about, you know, solving problems that are important in the world you know, is um, like you said, like, you know, your friend whose kids want to talk about climate change, like it, it, it can be a little tough and overwhelming, yeah. right? And there's a lot yeah. going on in the world right there's now. There's a lot so, in the world that needs to be fixed. So. Yeah. So breaking it down and making it easy to talk about and having a great entry point in to um, figuring out where you want to help is awesome. And, you know, that's what you did with Kiva too is you know, simplify it, make it small, make it accessible, make it understandable. Boy, there's, you know, a massive need out there in the world uh, for people who um, want to be a part of the change and just uh, need somebody to help them figure out how to do that. Well, thank you for seeing the common thread. It feels like another 
for, for sure, like another project that is just my heart. And it, 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 I feel like, you know, when you, when you find the thing that you want to build next, it's just like falling in love. And I am, I'm a little obsessed. So I'm having a lot of fun with it. And we probably don't have time to go into this, but I will just say, when you look at this through the entrepreneurial lens and just look at, you know, if you want to geek out and talk total dressable market or anything like that, the volunteer economy is fascinating. So you have mm-hmm. hundreds of billions hundreds of billions worth of value that's given away every year. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's nowhere near a saturated market, right? Volunteers, if you look at them as customers, only about a third of those that say they want to volunteer actually do it. So there's a huge number of people that I think that can be unlocked, right? To participate. Mm-hmm. And they're given, they're, they're paying with their time and talents for what they're, they're getting, you know, the feeling they, they often bring meaning to what, um, of, to that to the value that they're receiving, right? So mm. they go because they can tell a story to themselves about the impact they're having. And that's the exchange of value. That's the market. So mm-hmm. I think I'm going to live in the middle between nonprofits that need some help in certain areas, right? There's a set of things that are that are helpful that volunteers could do. Even the best nonprofits barely get to that place because they're all like working their asses off and they don't have time to stop and like design a perfect volunteer experience for the, the people mm. that want to show up and contribute. They're like, we need this, this, this. Can you help? Great. <laughs> mm. And then you have volunteers that want to participate, but it's a messy system. It's a messy market because people aren't mm. treating it as such. So I'm going to live in the middle. We're going to live in the middle. We're going to design these beautiful, rewarding, like supercharged, amazing experiences, starting with families because there aren't any other options. But imagine if, you know, you look at how volunteers are just super valuable um, participants, not just as volunteers, but volunteers are twice as likely to donate too. So just if you even think for a second about that. So imagine volunteers come, they have to jump over all these hurdles to give away their time and money and energy, right? And then eventually money too, which is crazy. So they're like trying really hard to give stuff away. What do they get in return? Not, not always. Um, they get a lot, they get a ton, but it's very, nobody's trying to like uh, improve on that exchange. And so that's where we want to live. We have this giant vision to connect volunteers and nonprofits more and to encourage people to like get started with something really achievable and then keep going. So I'm mm. I'm super, super excited about this market. Um if you well, want. I yeah, I definitely uh think you're on to something. And I want to introduce you to a friend of mine uh here in Columbus, Matthew Goldstein. We actually had a um similar, we still do have a collaboration. He I, when I started my company and uh, was building our own communities, I wanted to create opportunities for people to volunteer with mm-hmm. that lived and worked in the community. And that was kind of based on my own struggles with trying to take my family to volunteer. It was a lot okay. of what you described, red tape. It was really tough to kind of get people to even call you back and right, tell right, you right. that like, it's and okay like, to I'm come. And give stuff to you. <laughs> yeah. And it was like really, we were working really hard just to be able to find a place to, to volunteer. Right. And um and and so we were doing our own events for our own residents and we were having a horrible time doing it because we didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. And um, Matt Goldstein came into my office one day and said, I have this idea that if we um, provide a portal for employers, their teams can easily just go online, press a button, show up and volunteer. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I kind of been looking for somebody to do that. We've been trying to do it. What do you need? And he was like five thousand dollars. Right. And like, okay. today, yeah. So that was a done deal. Today, he's working with you know Fortune one hundred companies around the country and has like made a massive difference in this community. And it's so simple. It's a matter of just yeah. like taking away all of the logistics. Right. You literally go on, you press a button, show up, and volunteer. And it's incredible. Um, so you you two should know each other. I'd, but love to, I'd love to hook up. That'd be great. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time to share your story today. I really appreciate it. And thank, thank you for the work that you're doing. It's really great and thank making you. a difference in the world. So I um, really appreciate uh, that too. Any final so, thoughts? Anything you want to wrap no, up with? Just- I, I really, you're a great um, interviewer and it, it, we covered so much. We covered what I think is really important. So thank you for the time. My pleasure. Thanks, Jessica. Take care. 
Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman, on Twitter at bkaufman125, and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching fast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a d- any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.